friends. Happy to be talking at you. I am just getting ready to head to Maine. God bless me. Um, not Maine. Maine's amazing, but the holidays, it's just, um, I feel like we're doing it wrong. Why is it this stressful? We all just need like a week to not work, but also not stress out about everything else. And yeah, I just think we need to rethink this whole process. But anyway, the street dog and I are going to hop in a rental car that's going to steal all of my personal information, sell it to people, and drive up to Maine and give some gifts and kiss some babies and head back here for a couple days of R&R. Hopefully you have something nice planned. You're not too stressed out. Don't worry if the Christmas card doesn't get out. No one really cares. I mean, they care, but they're not going to be like, where is that card? I cannot believe I don't have a family portrait with some type of kind holiday message written in cursive across the front of it. I've never sent any, and I still have friends. So, oh. Uh, Before I get into what's happening with the news and who I'm interviewing today, I just need to tell you there was a situation last week. I woke up at like seven in the morning on Thursday with a bottom lip that had nearly exploded. Like, do you remember The Nutty Professor with Eddie Murphy? That scene where like his body just starts like getting fat and his lip, like his bottom lip just bulges out crazy. That is what my bottom lip looked like. The rest of me was normal, but my bottom lip looked like I had just had a terrible cosmetic procedure done that went horribly wrong. Or as my colleague Kaylee put it, I looked like a real housewife of D.C. And of course, that afternoon, I was hosting a fireside chat with my buddy Steve Stalder from Ancestry at 2 p.m. So it's like 7 a.m. I'm going live at 2 p.m. And like, it's not the Grammys, but I don't need something like this captured for posterity. Like, I was mortified. I was on Reddit. I was on Google trying to figure out what to do. I tried Benadryl. Didn't work. I tried icing with a metal spoon. Didn't work. Um, I tried hot packing. Didn't work. So I just had to do it looking absolutely ridiculous this far as I chat. So I sat as back as far back from my computer screen as I could, and I tried to like dim the room like a date was coming over or something at 2 p.m. so I could just like hide in the afternoon shadows. Whatever it happened, it's over. My privacy nerd friends, I obviously was sending selfies because I thought it was kind of hilarious after I, you know, aside from being mortifying, it was kind of hilarious. And my privacy nerd friends did say it was kind of hot. And we considered whether I should, in fact, start getting lip fillers and just enter, as Coben put it, my pouty era. I'm mulling. Anyway, I had a virtual doctor's appointment. Doctor said it was likely a cyst, put me on some antibiotics. And now I can at least speak without a lisp. So that's cool. Let's go over some news from recent days because I got to start packing. Schrems v. Elon began. Uh, Max Schrems, the man you love to love or love to hate, depending on your job requirements, has launched a complaint with the Dutch Data Protection Authority alleging that X, the site formerly known as Twitter, unlawfully used political and religious beliefs to target users with ads in violation of the GDPR. CNBC reported last week that in the complaint, Schrems's group, NYOB, says X showed Schrems an ad from the European Commission promoting online content regulation in the name of thwarting child sex abuse. The complaint says that the ad from the commission explicitly, I always mess up at least one word when I'm reading these news things that I've written up for you, and it's frustrating. Okay, back to professional mode. The complaint says the ad explicitly targeted users from the Netherlands. Um, It excluded 44 target segments based on right-leaning political parties, among others. MYOB also accuses the European Union of using X to target users based on political or religious beliefs. The European Commission said it's conducting a thorough review and that in October, it actually did advise the Commission's social media managers to, quote, refrain from advertising at this stage on X, end quote. The, the site formerly known as X hasn't yet commented. So we'll see what happens. I, if I had to guess, Schrems and Elon Musk end up in a boxing match for like uh, late night TV and we bet on it and people play drinking games around it and we'll find out. Okay, next, L.L. Bean is fighting a privacy bill in Maine. Maine's where the store is headquartered, of course, and also where I'm from. Yay! Do you know L.L. Bean is open 24 hours? Like, I always found that comforting. If I ever needed to go someplace in the middle of the night, I could go to L.L. Bean. 
I think that's still true. Maybe they changed their hours. I don't know. COVID, whatever. Uh, anyway, this privacy bill is called, quote, an act to create the Data Privacy and Protection Act, end quote. It's an act to create an act. And it would give main consumers the right to, quote, limit certain entities' access to consumers' personal data unless it is relevant to the service they offer, end quote. This was reported by Maine's WCSH, my local news station back in Maine. Planned Parenthood of Northern New England backed the bill, which was introduced by Rep. Maggie O'Neill. Uh, Planned Parenthood said, quote, no one should fear that their personal data would be compromised or used against them. But sadly, this information is already being weaponized, end quote. So that was back in October, at which time Politico reported this week, L.L. Bean testified at the state capitol against that bill, citing it would add, quote, unnecessary burdens for businesses, end quote. Meanwhile, a state senator has introduced a rival privacy bill that's more industry friendly. That one's called the Maine Consumer Privacy Act and it would carry less restrictions for buying and selling consumer data. Politico notes that it's not common for a nationally known but local brand, local domain like L.L. Bean, to align itself with big tech publicly. And while L.L. Bean says it didn't coordinate with tech companies in Maine on its testimony, and it didn't technically endorse a specific bill, its sentiments in its testimony did map to the industry-friendly one. L.L. Bean says it needs customer data for analytics and advertising. Lastly in the news, this is from last week, Congress approved a short-term extension of the government's warrantless surveillance powers, the Hill reports. A defense policy bill headed to the president now includes a measure that would extend Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act until mid-April. As a refresher, Section 702 allows U.S. law enforcement agencies to sweep up digital communications without a warrant within the U.S. as long as the surveillance is directed at catching foreigners. Critics say and have said for years that a whole lot of innocent Americans' communications get surveilled as a result, and that violates their civil rights. Section 702 was set to expire on December 31st in just a week or so, a week, a couple of weeks, I don't know. And privacy advocates have been pushing for a revision to any new agreement that would require a warrant when it comes to information on Americans. But the bill that passed on a House vote of 310 to 118 obviously does not include that provision. So for now, Section 702 is funded as is until April 2024. As others have noted on social media, obviously, this is relevant to the um, relationship we have with the EU, um, who they've been pushing for greater protections for EU citizens related to intelligence agencies' collection of surveillance data. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and how the EU reacts to any reforms or lack of reforms. Okay, on to today's episode. Today on the show, I have a friend I admire mucho. The reason I admire her is that I've followed her for years back to when we both must have been newbies in this space. She used to work as a technologist for the FTC, which is just baller in itself. But now, and I'm skipping over other highlights from her resume for brevity, she's head of privacy at Asana, which is a tool I use every day to get my stuff done, by the way. I've just always found Whitney to be super earnest and also like she loves to help other people out. And I dig that. She's super passionate about privacy and cybersecurity and AI and more. And if you follow her on the socials, you know what I'm talking about. Plus, she posts a lot of tips for those privacy pros coming up behind us. And uh, I think we should all do that as much as possible. Speaking of helping, she helped me out by saying yes to coming on the show and dropping some knowledge. Her name is Whitney Merrill. And uh, listen, if you like the episode, once you hear it, I always super appreciate your social posts helping me spread the word for folks looking for something like this. Sometimes I take your comments to my team just to be like, oh my God, how nice was this? And then it's just warm goodness spreading all around. All right. Anyway, this will be the last podcast of the year unless they like cancel the GDPR between now and New Year's. So I hope you take some time for yourself during this next big push, this next rush. My theme this year is boundaries for the holiday season. Sometimes you got to put up that fence, man. If you know, you know. I cherish you for your loyal listens. Love you. Talk soon. So you were recently in Hawaii. Yes. How was that? It was good. Um, I uh, surprised my husband with flights um, for our one-year anniversary, mostly for, like, a couple of reasons. One, I just wanted to, like, book a vacation and, like, 
you know, there's so many choices. And two, he loves Hawaii and he knows like I would want to go other places. I love Hawaii too, but like other places. And so then like the surprise was also like that I said, okay, let's go back to Hawaii. Oh my uh, God. That's amazing. I, why will yeah, no one nice. ever surprise me with a trip to Hawaii is my question. Oh my God. Um, that's amazing. Did you get to relax or were you kind of like, well, I was, t- I was pinging you for one. Were you able to like get offline mostly? Well, for me, like on vacation, I do a couple of things. I like to read a lot. And so I, I finished a book and, and picked up another book. I'm actually rereading Neuromancer. Um, and then I, bookmark all these privacy long reads or regs I never can get to because I'm so like exhausted at the end of the week and I actually get to a chance to like read the privacy long reads or like the security long reads and so people think it's kind of crazy but I feel then caught up in in like what I'm interested in as opposed to like doing work yeah I hear you um you and my other privacy friends like just so passionate about it which i love like that's why i love talking to y'all because you just truly like love this stuff like the practice of it and the philosophy of it and all that stuff um but i was just actually talking with my CISO. we were gonna maybe publish a blog post before q1 and i was like i don't know people start to log off and he's like yeah but like sometimes that's when people actually catch up on the like stuff that they actually want to read so maybe it's not such a bad idea i was like oh i guess that's fair um, cool. So yeah. I just want to talk about, like, you're someone who I love to talk to because of what I just mentioned, your passion, and because you always have sort of your, to use an overused phrase, your finger on the pulse of what's happening, and I see you on social, like, weighing in on things. And so I thought we would just kind of breeze through some, like, different topics that may or may not be on your mind and um yep. feel free to like take us in another direction if something pops to mind you know me like this is very flexible so if you're like you know what you're not talking about what you should be like boom you know like that is all yeah welcome um so in general um what's been going on lately with you kind of like what's top of mind for you um just within like privacy and security industry news yeah, a couple things. I mean, everyone's obviously talking about AI, 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 and AI governance. And along those lines, people are talking about data governance and, and where these things should properly live. And that's been top of mind for me for a while. And I am a very process, streamlined, oriented person. And so I've I don't want this to come off like I've been tuning my own horn, but like if you've been practicing privacy for a while, you saw these trains coming. And I think while there's a lot happening, if you've built really thoughtful processes in the process, you kind of already have a strong foundation to build all of the AI governance or data governance processes um, along with you know, a privacy program that's already been built. So I'm thinking about that a lot and thinking about how to make sure these things are efficient and thoughtful, just like practically. And um, it's along those lines, it's kind of a top of mind thing for me that, you know, AI has already been regulated. And I want people to really remember that because there's so much conversation about the new EU AI Act and like AI laws and the AI executive order that, you know, there's still a lot that's been done. I've been doing AI in my career um, for most of it, frankly. Um, and even did my my master's research. I used machine learning in order to to like kind of prove out a, a, a privacy hypothesis that we had had. So I I think a lot is changing, but at the same time, I want people to be grounded and say, not that much is changing, like stick to the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And so that's really top of mind for me yeah. lately. And when you say that, like, we already have, I'm going to misphrase what you said, but like the AI has already been regulated, I think is what you said. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about that for folks who are like, what do you mean? AI is like a brand new area of law. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, uh, and I will 
disclose, I am not a copyright expert, but obviously there's copyright law out there that is a hot topic and how it interacts with AI. But from a privacy um, and data perspective, right, we're looking at a system that processes data, um, that puts that data in another system and provides some sort of data output. And we're looking at the same questions. How is data used? Where is data being transferred? How long is data being stored? And those are things that are already, you know, regulated by laws like GDPR and CCPA. And, you know, as you're thinking about like the use of AI, AI algorithms and misuse of data, that's something the FTC has been enforcing for quite a while. I think the one of the biggest ones was, you know, Weight Watchers was training an algorithm on data that they collected unlawfully. And the FTC said, you need to dump the whole algorithm. And so, we're seeing that happening already. And so I think if you're thinking about AI governance in your org and you've been doing AI for a while and this is the first time you're thinking of it, I think you're already behind. And so I wouldn't wait for the law to push and say that you must do X, Y, and Z because there's already enough indications from the laws that already exist of what you need to be doing. Okay, fair, fair. And you actually have AI in your in your job title, don't you? Or no? No. Oh, okay. For some reason, no. no. I, was... I mean, AI falls like somewhat under my purview. It's shared responsibility across the work, but um, I think a lot about AI generally. Yeah, I do hear that conversation happening right now, and I think, like, from what I understand, just from talking to privacy people in general in my career, similarly to how some people fell into privacy, like there are discussions right now about like where does AI like. Uh, protection or data protection related to AI um, live, like who actually owns that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I th- We did a happy hour territory recently. We talked about AI and a lot of people were saying that like, yeah, I'm not sure if this should be part of my job or part of their job or, you know, who holds, who holds it for this. Um, so to be determined, I suppose. I also think it depends on like how much and what type of AI that you're doing, right? A lot of people doing AI aren't developing their own models. Or if they are, you know, it's very limited. And But if you're a company that is building AI hardware or building foundational models, it's a whole different um, can of worms right. of like what that responsibility looks like and who potentially owns that. Because... You know, I think everyone's looking at AI as it relates to, um, you know, product features and then AI usage internally for data that already exists. And I think people look at privacy because they go, well, you talk to all the cross-functional stakeholders, like you do all the things like this seems like a jack of all trades type situations. And I think from like a governance perspective that those there's alignment there. But if you're looking at foundation building and looking at trust and safety and the ethics piece of it and like actually building models that could, you know, that's taking some level of risk on the type of data that they're processing. I think it's going to be a much larger shared responsibility across an org than, hey, privacy, you get to like deal with this and own it because you can't ignore the copyright issues. Um, yeah, fair. When you're building the model. This is going to sound like a big question and maybe unfair, but like, because I know it kind of depends, like it's highly dependent on, like you said, like, are you building your own model? Are you using someone else's AI feature, et cetera? But like, in general, when you're thinking about AI and your concerns, are there one or two, like, kind of like focus areas that you think are, you care about the most? Like, I know we care a lot about potential biases. Like, if we have humans inputting numbers into an algorithm, like, that have biases themselves, that's going to affect the output. Or if I'm scraping data from a site, am I scooping up, um, anything that's confidential or proprietary, et cetera? What kind of concerns you about in general? Yeah, I think. You know, and this goes to kind of the fundamentals of any system processing data, but I look at um, what data was used to train and the transparency around that to the extent that that's available. Two, um, is the model training on the data and the input provided to it? Three, um, is it storing that data or using it for its own purpose? So, you know, an AI model could use data for its own purpose that is not related to training the model. For example, um, trust and safety, 
They could say, we're monitoring the use of how you use the model. And while it's not training the model, you know, we're concerned that it's being used improperly or violation of our terms of service. Um, and then you look at, you know, the output of it and how that output is being used. And so those tend to be the big pieces for me, right? Thinking and focusing on, you know, getting to, if you're not a foundation model builder, you're not building your own model. To me, those are the big pieces of it. And then you get to how do you like train and care about people who are using that output to make sure that they're one complying with relevant, like legal obligations, you know, obviously using AI to determine whether or not someone gets hired for a job. We already have GDPR, you know, automated decision-making and now CPRA or CCPA and the CPPA, um, all the C uh, uh, acronyms, um, speaking, speaking to this. And so I think then it's making sure you have internal processes uh, in place. Uh, Yep. So those are the things I think through when, when looking at it. Um, But AI is one of many of the things on the top of my mind. Um, So, yeah. And uh, we won't focus totally on AI, but while I have you here, because I know that you are someone who cares a lot about it and knows a lot about it, um, do you find, I won't ask you about things about your organization specifically, but in general, do you find that you have to do sort of a lot of educating of folks about, hey, like there are risks here and we need to be paying attention to X, Y, Z, or do you think that there's a sort of some common understandings about what we're actually trying to protect here? I think it falls in both directions. I think people have a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt that sometimes are not grounded um, necessarily, or they've seen such bad behavior exist as it relates to AI based on things they've seen in the news, that they react in a way that maybe is not quite threading the needle. Yeah. And then I think there are people who use AI and for purposes and put input data into AI models and and tools without thinking through asking any of those foundational questions. And so I've seen things go in both directions. Um, This morning, I spent a lot while I was scrolling the social medias, um, Dropbox is getting a lot of heat right now um, because I don't know what happened. Someone tweeted about AI being turned on by default in Dropbox. I don't actually have all the facts, but to me, it looked like a comms problem. OpenAI is a subprocessor of Dropbox, which means they generally flow down the appropriate privacy and security terms. They probably are not training on that data. I think they they say that in their FAQ. But the outrage on social media indicates there was some lack of communication here. It also shows how fearful people still are about the use of AI in their daily life when they don't feel like they had the choice. Mm. And so... It's to me, that's like also top of mind, which is how do you when we have really new technologies where there are concerns and there are worries, roll it out when you have done all of your due diligence in a way that like properly communicates it to the um, end user yeah, or to the consumer. Absolutely. Which is a problem. I mean, not necessarily. That sounds like what you're describing may have been like comms should have done some more chatting with the the internal folks but also um you know uh we know it, that in privacy in general we kind of struggle with how do i communicate all that i need to communicate in a policy to the end user like we haven't yep. figured out how to take legalese pages and pages of like well we have to include this because legally we have to cover our butts and then communicate that effectively to someone who may not be all that tech savvy right like it's uh, sort of what you're saying about going back to foundational principles like this is it's not new stuff but it's like still relevant problems that we're all tr- sometimes trying to sort out Privacy policies, notices, statements, whatever you call them, are one of the most difficult things to write. And I'm sure if you go back to my Twitter, like there is somewhere where I'm criticizing somebody's privacy statement. And I don't think it's until I rewrote a privacy statement from scratch. And I've done that exercise two or three times now in my career that I realized what a difficult position, especially given all the new privacy laws that exist and and the different like changing, you know, ecosystem and privacy, how difficult it is to communicate that well. Mm. And 
in a way that isn't too long. Because I see these, you know, oh, this privacy statement's super long. And you're thinking, well, to make it short, you have to say generalizations. But then you have generalizations and you feel like you haven't been told. So, and then you have the things that legally are required to be used in the terms of art that the regulators are saying must be disclosed in a privacy statement that the end user doesn't even understand. Mm. And I think it's just the... I I would love for the whole world to move away from privacy notices as the truth um, f- of like everything or like the thing you need to look at to feel like what's happening with your data and move to like a notice at collection. And, you know, C- I think CCPA was trying to get there and Apple does this really well. They use the little people icons. Um, but I think more you have the context about the collection, the use, and the sharing of your data at the point at which you are giving that data up or at which it's being collected, the more trust you're going to build with your end users. And then the less that the scariness of that privacy statement matters, Mm -hmm. right? It can be a catch-all for everything, but you're communicating in the right way to the user at the right time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's truly how you're going to build the trust in the long run. I think the getting the privacy statement to both be user-friendly and be correct and useful is a losing, I think it's an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Even for me, like when I take technical writing, like say we're going to release a feature at TerraTrue, I just did this actually, and they give it to me and it's for public consumption. So I need to be like writing it for like maybe someone who's really tech savvy and who's product shopping, but maybe someone who's just getting their feet wet and someone says, go investigate XYZ. Um, it's really hard. And I'm not even like handicapped by having to include certain legalese, but just trying to write something succinctly about how a complicated technological process works is difficult, you know, and I've been writing and trying to take complicated, you know, terms and turn them into layman's terms for like 20 years now, you know, like it's still very, very challenging. So I feel for people in the legal profession who are having to handle stuff like that. Um, just before we move off of AI, how do you feel about what's happening in the EU? Um, I don't know if you have like spent extensive time on the AI bill um, and the sort of trilogue process there, but are, do you have a sense of like they're getting it right or wrong? Um, I, I, I will admit I've like obviously kept an eye on it, and then I, you know, saw that they've they. They came to a resolution. I really can't speak to whether or not I think they're getting it right or wrong yet. Mm. Um, I think we'll see it in practice. Yeah. I think I, and maybe this is like controversial. We'll see how it's enforced, mm. right? Like we, we panicked about GDPR um, and I actually saw a really thoughtful post on LinkedIn and I apologize. I can't remember who, who I saw it from, but they basically called out saying, you know, the U.S. is actually kicking the EU's butt in how they're enforcing privacy, that we're seeing really like big, thoughtful decisions. And even though we don't have this omnibus law, like the FTC is still making moves and these uh, the AGs are moving and we have BIPA. And I think the proof is in the pudding. pudding. You, can, you can pass the law and I'm curious how it's going to get enforced. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I'm at um, because it's, I believe it's going to be the same DPAs that are enforcing GDPR, and we're still seeing some, I mean, like GDPR fines are coming out and, and like they're enforcing, but it's not, I think at the rigor, not rigors, probably not the, the like uh, pace at which I think people expect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see too, because um you know, I'm not going to opine one way or another, but I know there was a lot of frustration with, you know, sort of Helen Dixon's shop and um, being able to effectively regulate all these big tech companies that are headquartered in Dublin. Um, and, you know, fairly or unfairly, she took a ton of heat for that. Um, and now, of course, she's moving on and we'll have a new DPA. So it'll be interesting to see if that new DPA comes in and like, I'm going to take all that like feedback and, you know, turn public opinion around or if it's going to be sort of more of the same of that sort of legacy to be seen, you know? I mean, it's hard when you're a regulator. Like I have in the inside, you have a, you have a limited amount of resources and there are trade-offs. If you're going to go after 
the largest companies in the world doing some of the most cutting edge technology or pushing the envelope in a particular way, that's going to take more resources and time, even if you land in a different spot than than others would want, that doesn't allow you to enforce across other types of industries or companies that may not need as much time and resources internally to sift through and regulate. And so I often wonder if, you know, the regulation or the enforcement by large regulators after just the big tech companies is actually doing a disservice to privacy generally because you're not seeing this middle level of company get looked at closer. Mm. Um and so as a result, they're like, well, I'm not the big one, so I'm fine. Right. And I think that's what's been interesting to your point about seeing effective regulation uh, enforcement in the U.S. is like the FTC going after these like relatively small like health apps, for example, and also saying, you know, which I think I, I haven't watched trends in regulation as like sort of a with a scientific approach, but saying based on either the Dobbs decision or something that Biden mandates or whatever, like, hey, we're going after health and location date, like be on watch. We're specifically honing in on these areas and not necessarily just going after the Facebooks or the metas or what have you, but going after the flows and the pre-moms and that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something the FTC has generally been pretty good at because I think a lot of people don't realize how a case becomes a case at the FTC. Yeah. Um, Tell us more. The staff attorneys, yes, the staff attorneys um, basically get to, I mean, there is direction from the commission. There's direction for at the bureau level. Sometimes senators or congressmen write to the FTC. But staff attorneys have a lot of authority, at least when I was there, to investigate and bring their own cases. And so, um, you know, I worked with someone for a period of time who had brought a lot of cases against video game companies. And the reason behind that was her son was playing video games. And so <laughs> she saw these things happening because they were part of her life. Yeah. And I brought a case because I saw something on a Reddit post once. And I think um, that facilitates this um it can be any one type of situation or like the more middle or small size companies um, in order to enforce or, 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 yeah, at least take open and investigate and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, the CPPA, as we mentioned, released a draft proposal ahead of its rulemaking on AI. Have you been sifting through that? Any like, did anything kind of stand out to you? Was it kind of what you'd expect? Yeah, it's what I expect, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, I I think there's a lot to be applauded and not at reinventing the wheel for things like discussions around automated decision making. Um, it looks very on par with if you've built out a program around a automated decision making and GDPR, you're not going to feel like this is a really big burden. Um, if you, uh, there may be specific small changes or differences between the two that you may need to make. But I looked at it and went, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's good. Like, I'm not worried, um, which is good. And um, I think it's companies, though, who don't op operate globally or folks who generally have not had to worry about job applicant processes, I think will find the most uh, worries or concerns um, or processes that they need to build out, which is, I think it specifically calls out like decisions around jobs and automated decision-making and the ability to opt out and give notice. And I think if you're using or leveraging a tool and relying on it really heavily, building those processes is going to take people time and effort as people actually leverage their rights, get that notice and opt out. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll have to have the background to support it. But if you're an organization who is looking at individual job applicants regardless and making decisions individually about them, then you look at this and you go, well, when we do this, we can build it out. But for right now, we're good. Yeah. Um, lastly, on AI, um, we saw mm -hmm. the Biden uh, executive order, which mandated 
federal agencies to sort of start getting thoughtful about all of this stuff. Um, I was going to ask you if it kind of gave you any practical takeaways or if it kind of inspired any ideas, but I think I'm asking you to repeat yourself in that. Like you've been kind of seeing this coming for a long time and been like thinking about these issues and going back to first principles for a long time. So probably not really a game changer for you. I mean, I think it's a great like first step, right? Because by forcing federal agencies to think about this, they're going to think about the potential harms for the areas in which they regulate. And that may push rulemaking on their end and um, how they use it internally. And I think the closer you get to it, because, you know, when you're in a federal agency, getting technology in the procurement process is quite a that this is going to, you know, force a conversation that may have taken another five to 10 years to bubble up. Um, And I think that's really good. Um, And I think we should be talking about it and thinking about it. I do wish we were talking more about privacy and first before we start talking about AI, like federally. Um, But that's okay. I think this will also force that conversation more. Um, Do you think, uh, you know, the federal privacy bill that we, you know, God knows when we get it, but do you think, um, if you're looking at your crystal ball, that we end up wrapping up AI into that federal bill, or do you think it's going to be handled separately? I don't think we'll pass either. That's my... Ever. That's my bet. Ever. I love this because I've just... At least... I yeah. stopped wagering because like years ago, I was like, this year looks pretty good. There's lots of groundswell support. But it's like, no, I'm not saying that anymore. But you're saying it's not going to happen. At least for the next couple of years. Okay. I mean, I don't know. Next year's election season, election year, a lot of things can change. I don't think it's happening anytime before the election. Um, I think when the election happens, we, I think it's a different situation we need to like look at. Mm. But no way is a federal law in either area getting passed. I don't think we're going to pass major federal legislation. Um, I, I Maybe I'm a little bit more nihilist than others, but um, I just think there's too many differences of opinion um, and too much uncertainty around it mm. for the U.S. Because, I mean... I've long said this. Um, I probably the first time we ever talked. I probably said this on a podcast with you. But if the U.S. could just pass a federal data breach law, like this non-controversial mm-hmm. federal data breach law, get rid of the fifty-three state regime, come up with clear principles and who needs to be it be reported to across all industries of the world, that'd be a huge, massive improvement. And like we can't even take baby steps to get in that direction. And so thinking about a really complex area is difficult. Um, I mean, we currently don't regulate nonprofits from a privacy perspective. A lot of nonprofits out there (laughs) collecting a lot of data and they fall into this like in-between world. And I think that's the one thing I think GDPR really did right. It was this one's for everyone. Mm. Um, and the U.S., if we continue to carve out industries, we're going to continue to leave those industries behind. And we're just going to have this like bifurcated, separated, like inconsistent privacy regime because HIPAA's already, I mean, HIPAA's not even a privacy law, but people think it's a privacy law. So it keeps getting carved out of everything, but it shouldn't be. Mm. And now we have the health data. And so it's like, it all just needs to be revamped. Yeah. And I, I don't think we're in a position to really thoughtfully get there because uh, every industry wants to be carved out. Do you think that there's even less appetite now for a law or maybe not appetite, but like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, now that we have all of these state laws trickling down and for sure in 2024, we'll see more of them. It seems like it's just kind of become the norm and maybe it hasn't caused as much heartburn for folks as they thought it might to comply with the different laws because of like a lot of significant overlap. Like, do you think that there's less of a push now from practitioners? Like, we got to do something because I'm going nuts. Are they just, are we all just living with these state laws now? I think we are living with these state laws now. I think we're seeing that they are following a somewhat similar formula. We'll see. Yeah. 
they haven't really heavily been enforced yet. Right. And I think as we'll see if BIPA and private rights of action really start to change the way people have conversations about the potential federal uh, privacy law. I think if we see an increase in laws with private rights of action, that will pop up again because mm-hmm. that's I think that's the fear that a lot of people have mm-hmm. is what will come from that. Yeah. Um I don't know. I it's it's really hard to tell, but I I just wish we'd start with the basics and not try to do this big massive undertaking first and just say, okay, what do we know are easy wins that everyone agrees with on both sides of the aisle and just start tackling those. Mm-hmm. And make those apply across industry. I think you'd create a lot of clarity. Um, I think it would make a lot of sense. I mean, we're we're kind of seeing that incidentally happen to public companies in the S- with the SEC and cybersecurity rules, right? Like it's basically like you're a public company; these are the rules that apply to you, regardless of your industry, which is kind of an interesting separate. Now, obviously, if you're a private company, the the rules are not the same, but no matter your industry, the rules, if you're public and you can see that they can be consistently applied potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like I asked because I hear less, like any, whenever something happens enough times, you start to react less strongly to, to the news, you know, like I don't hear as many people or read as many people on the socials, like throwing their arms up and being like, oh my God, Illinois passed. It's just like, now that's just what it is. Like, that's what it is. And um, I just feel like there was so much more sort of clamoring, like we got to do something because we can't have a patchwork like before we had a patchwork. And now it just kind of seems like, all right, whatever. Or maybe people are just apathetic because they're like, Congress just can't get out of this gridlock over like a private right of action and preemption. So whatever, like what it is is what it is, you know? I don't know. But that's why I ask. Yeah, I'm sure I like was one of those people clamoring. I think some of it is you get used to it too. You start to see what it practically looks like and how you can build a more like holistic process that is compliant. Um, what I don't want is, and I hope, I hope, I hope, um, is for regulators to so tediously enforce nitpicks that are specific to their laws and rather think about like the holistic situation that companies are in. Meaning, you know, if a particular law has a very specific disclosure requirement that like requires an icon, right? Like the opt-in, opt-out, like icon, you know, and another law doesn't require that icon, Right. Like, is that the thing to be enforcing or are they properly giving the right opt out? Right. And that's I think that's some of the fears that some people have is that like you'll see conflicting pieces and then you'll have this bifurcated web experience based on where you're located. And it will be really difficult. But I think we're not seeing the regs get that different. But also, I think we're seeing the regulators generally say to be pretty practical in their enforcement. Or that's the hope. Mm. There's still a lot of enforcement to come. So yeah, because like in financial regulation, it's very specific and it is very nitpicky, and you have to comply with each of the things. Um, and privacy could go in that direction or not. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, you almost hope to see what we see with like, for example, state AGs when they collaborate on um, investigations or enforcement actions. Um, you know, you hope to see maybe some of these state privacy regulators, whether it falls on the AG or whether they have their own agency like California to kind of get together at some yearly summit or something and be like, all right, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? Like, what's the big picture here that we really want to be protecting against? Like, what are you emphasizing? You know, how are you, what are your education campaigns look like? You know, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know what that looks like on the inside. I think that'd be great. Um, Okay. I don't have too much more time with you. I think another interesting newsworthy thing is this FISA reauthorization bill that's Mm -hmm. in the works. Um, I really love this topic because, I don't know, I love philosophy and I love like what should or shouldn't be allowed. And I also love the passion that ignites on both sides of this argument because like when I used to cover, I say this all the time when I talk about anything related to 
uh, government surveillance. But like when I used to be on Capitol Hill reporting for the IPP on these hearings, like I'll never like some of the hearings that really stand out to me are these hearings that we were having. And this was years ago on 702. And uh, I think it was right after the Snowden re- revelations is why we were talking so much about it. And it was like the government saying, you know, the FBI, the NSA, all these government agencies saying like, we have to have all of this data. It's essential to us being able to protect Americans um, and privacy advocates saying, no, like you're sweeping up too much and you are invading Amer- innocent Americans' privacy in this bulk collection. So a little bit of context for people who are listening to this podcast and may not be like totally up on what's happening now. And then I'll ask Whitney to weigh in. But Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which we call FISA, will expire on December 31st of this year. And 702 allows the government to conduct surveillance inside the U.S. by vacuuming up digital communication so long as the surveillance is directed at foreigners currently located outside of the U.S. Um, and it prohibits intentionally targeting Americans. But the problem is, as I mentioned, that a lot of times there's all sorts of data that's swept up in that where innocent Americans may actually be um, surveilled um, unknowingly and um, this new bill that's being that has been introduced would renew 702 section 702 for three years um, but it would require a warrant when it comes to gathering information on Americans um, with some exceptions so the House Judiciary Committee is going to review the bill and Republicans are expected to push back on this uh, warrant requirement it, and even Biden, who we all know is a Democrat, has said that the warrant requirement would take up scarce resources um, within government agencies who are trying to do their jobs. So I guess, uh, you know, what's your take on all of this or what should happen with reauthorizing Section 702? Do we need to get more stringent on privacy protections um, in your mind or not? Yeah, great question. Um, 702. You know, okay, so for everyone listening to we just got the data privacy framework, which, you know, give it two years and it's going to be challenged and, and killed. But 702 is the hot topic in the data transfers, data privacy framework. Mm-hmm. So you can't not think about what this reauthorization means for global data transfers. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, they've reached an agreement for data privacy, the data privacy framework, and for um, adequacy as a result for transfers to the United States. I think from what I read, there are two bills, one that that is an ex- massive expansion of 702 and another that has the warrant requirement. And I think depending on which direction they go to reauthorize is going to impact that adequacy and that data transfer. So I just, I, one, think 702 drastically needs to be reformed um, and and needs better privacy protections. I think it's better for the world. I wonder if that warrant requirement will actually have any impact in that conversation about data collection and, um, you know, data transfers generally. But I, I was doing a little bit of, like, what's going on with it as of this morning? And I saw one article from, like, a myth type resource. So (laughs) please, everyone take this with a grain of salt, which was like, it looks like the speaker had pulled both both bills. So um, which is it's December 13th, folks, (laughs) (laughs) reauthorizations, December 31st. Um, So I don't really know what's going to happen, but I hope they go the privacy centric route. I think that's the right thing to do or else we're going to be having the data transfer conversation again, because I think they reauthorize an expansion. That's going to be the hook for someone to challenge the data privacy framework. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Shrems is like, oh, yes, here we go. I'm staying up. Forget about Christmas and New Year's. I'm ready. Um, Yeah. And I think it's hard, too, because like. Obviously, for necessary purposes, there's so much that happens within that bulk collection that we can't know about, right? Like it's under, it's classified. We can never know. Um, and so it's hard to like take out like the hypotheticals and be like, oh, well, this is, this is a situation where someone was like, impacted or or maybe even just talking about like that they were harmed just based on the data collection themselves like we don't really have those examples and so we have to kind of just argue in these vague terms for like 
principles and like what should or shouldn't be allowed. But I think sometimes it's hard to get like Americans fired up about an issue that's happening behind closed doors, really, you know? I think that's absolutely true. I also think, you know, having one been a regulator where I see within like a system that's a black box or working in a company where I understand what the data flows are. When you are in it and you've built it and you deal with it on a daily basis, your acceptance or acknowledgement of the risks is very different than those living outside of that black box. And it may be that there are abuses, right? And you go, okay, well, I've investigated those. We try to minimize them. We're constantly trying to enhance the process. But because it's so hard to see that, like, people are always going to assume the worst is happening frequently. Mm. And it may be, and it may not be. We don't know, right? Um, the Like, the hypotheticals are really hard to tell. And so uh, it's hard to trust a system that does not have, you know, more stringent, and I, you know, it's getting somewhat better, but more stringent oversight into into it unless you just make it more difficult to start with because you don't get that privilege to see where it ha- where it is a good thing where it did save the day where it did right. stop something really bad and we also don't get to see or sometimes we only hear about all the situations where it went wrong and so i think the answer is if you're going to keep it a black box you need to make the protection the the level of the burden from a privacy perspective, needs to be much, 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 much higher. Mm. And then you get to keep that veil, that secrecy because we know the protections are in place. Otherwise, just trust us. Right. Doesn't go far. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't go very far. Not these days, don't um, But yeah, it's hard to be, get people riled up, especially when, you know, people say, I don't have anything to hide or they don't think their communications are involved with it, you know. What people get riled up about is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And not to go on a slight tangent, but one of the things that's also the top of mind for me Mm -hmm. is privacy in automobiles and cars. And it's something that when I'm buying my first car, probably in the next year or so, and I started looking into privacy stuff related to cars. And for the most part, no one really thinks about it or talks about it until you start to dig in and see and tell people about it. Then all of a sudden they're like, well, I didn't think it would be me. Mm. I didn't think that would happen to me or I didn't know they were doing this. And so I think 702 is one of those things that's similar to that, that they're not close enough to it to understand how they are directly impacted or could be directly impacted. Totally. And I was writing about this the other day in one of my newsletters, or maybe I said it in the intro of a podcast or both, but I drive to Maine twice a year and I rent a car and I get into the rental car, whether it's a zip car or from a true rental agency like budget or Hertz or whatever. And I'll go to plug in my smartphone because I'm like, well, I don't want to hold my phone. I definitely need directions. I want to be able to pick up calls. I want to change my music. And I go to plug it in and the Bluetooth asks me which, you know, which device do you want to connect to? And I look and there's a a short list of, you know, however many people I can see the name of their phone. And when you read the report that I think Mozilla put out recently on data privacy in cars, you realize that even if those people have left the car, that the that the car company has actually extracted a lot of that data while the person was driving that car. And like, did they delete it afterward? Like, doesn't sound like it. Like, did they sell it to marketers? Probably, you know? And so like, there's all of like, it just makes me, it's more visceral to me because I'm like, I, I have to rent this car. I don't own one. And me and everyone else who's gotten in the car in the last however many years that this car has been available to rent has probably been subject to some data collection. We would rather not. And even my conversations, like I'm calling my, mom and she's like you know i'm like you know this isn't true of my mom but let's say you know how's the hernia you know what i mean like we're talking about stuff that like i definitely don't want any company even if it's anonymized like i don't want anyone else in on that combo i don't want that combo transcribed um so it's definitely something that i think about more too you know it is is fast i mean this is like the more you learn about how things work and this is kind of to the the thread I put on LinkedIn the other day, but the more you like are able to issue spot and you realize what a broken system we live in. And I think this is the extent to which when you get really into the details and you think about lawmaking, it it feels like you need to solve all the problems. And I wish we just, again, to my 
like previous point, just start knocking off the things we know are hard or problematic and then get to the larger, the, the larger structural issues. Mm. But for cars, I, I plugged in my, I rented a car when I was in Hawaii last week and, uh, we had to return the car unexpectedly. Um, and I forgot to clear my data, but when I had synced my phone, it asked me, do you want to sync your contacts? No, at least it asked me this time. They used to not ask Mm -hmm. Two, would you like to do X, Y, and Z? No. Okay. And then I used Apple CarPlay, which I feel like puts a little bit of a bubble around it to my knowledge. And, um, but I wanted to delete my phone from the the car and I just totally forgot. And so now I'm like, can't get that back. I saw the previous phones and it makes me think about how rental car companies should be thinking about what cleaning means. Mm. And when they clean the cars, I think that should include a reset of, of like the electronics. We need to um, introduce a vacuum and delete uh, bill. <laughs> yes, because I mean, the reason we returned the car unexpectedly is it was infested with bugs. But oh my god! Oh my god! So yes, uh, to a vacuum and delete bill, but vacuum, you know, I just vacuum fumigate delete <laughs> VCD VFD. I think for a while, like it wasn't very easy to clean stuff off of cars, but I, I'm, I'm seeing the improvements as I've rented cars over time that at least it's being built into the software, but yeah, yeah, it it worries me. All right. Lastly, before I need to let you go back to your very busy job, I want to talk a little bit about this LinkedIn thread that you just mentioned, because this is some of the stuff I love from you on social. Cause I also appreciate that. I feel like you are really someone who's interested in, just helping other people who are in this industry um, and, you know, I'm sure beyond in your life, but I know you mostly professionally, um, you know, you're really sincere about like helping to give other people a leg up. Um, and so you, I'm not going to go through all of them because we don't have the time, but you posted a really thoughtful thread on LinkedIn and Twitter the other day. I think there were 13 um, little tips for folks who are trying to be successful in privacy. Um, and I thought I would just ask you about three of them that stuck out to me. Um, the, I think the reason they stuck out to me is because they're things that I don't think we talk about enough, but I do hear come up within the context of talking to other people working in the field. Um, so if you could just comment briefly maybe on these, um, it might be helpful. I know there's actually a lot of folks who are newer in the space who do listen to this podcast and want to learn and grow. So one of the things that you said was, and I think this is so true and so important, even for me in my role, I don't do privacy, I do content. But this is actually important to me too at working at a tech startup, which is to, as you say, want to know how things work. If you said in your post, if you understand how the technology works and you understand the data flows, you will give infinitely better advice. You'll issue spot much better. Yeah. So um, a great example of this that has come up in the news recently was the the use of subpoenas by um, various government agencies and, and the state governments and federal government to Google and to Apple to get access to notifications um, on phones. And I thought about it and I was like, interesting. I clearly don't know how notifications work. Because it's interesting to me that what type of data that they're getting access to that it's being leveraged. And there was a really great uh, piece I saw at some point where someone was like, this is how the notifications framework works on iOS. And the payload of the notification, including the text entry, is not necessarily encrypted end to end and could be stored in Apple's service. And so you have a, you're using Signal, and I don't know, right, how Signal works. So I can't issue spot, right? I, I don't know if they're, they are encrypting and then they might be because it's Signal. But you're using an app and you get a, a notification. I want to know what are those data flows? How much access does, does, does Apple actually have that would facilitate that need for that warrant requirement? And how is it working in the implementation that my company, my nonprofit, whoever I'm working with is leveraging to make that work? And so in in being able to do that, you can think through all sorts of different privacy issues, like should Apple be a sub-processor? Should, um, should you be talking to your engineering team about like encrypting that 
that payload for the notification. And so once you learn more about just how that system works, you can issue Spot so much better as a privacy and go one layer deeper because then if someone comes to you and they're really worried about notifications and how you're leveraging notifications because they saw this news article, you're, you've already thought about it. Um, but I think it's a really hard thing to do because you can't know how everything that works. Right. Uh, but that's the one that to me, once I saw that, I was like, oh man, once I know how this works better, I can understand what a level of issue this is as I think about it in my daily work. And to get some of those answers, would you recommend maybe it's just a coffee with uh, your favorite PM, your product manager, or or an engineer who you think speaks plain English, you know, rather it doesn't only speak engineering, those types of like soft skills of just like getting to know someone who can who can help you learn that stuff? Yeah, I think, yeah, asking asking the team who implements it, talking with them about it, um, asking if there's a place where they look at documentation and, and, and saying to yourself, well, you may not understand every word of the documentation, but when you say, apparently in Apple's documentation, it like has a big yellow box that says this data is not encrypted. You need to do, encrypt the payload before it goes to Apple. Mm. Any privacy person's going to see that go, oh, that's interesting. Uh-huh. Um. And probably be able to ask a bunch of follow-up questions from there to decide what your next step should be or if it is a worry for you at all. Um, Or you may change the way you do notifications internally, um, depending on the services you provide. So I think just, yeah, talking to people and asking questions. You'll, 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 you won't know everything, but you'll, you'll get to a better place for issues about it. Okay, you say be aware of your weaknesses. Privacy is one of the most cross-disciplinary and cross-functional fields. You won't be great at all of it. Know where you excel and where you struggle. Help find and hire people who have strengths where you have weaknesses. Yeah, so my favorite interview question um, when I'm hiring is, tell me something you're working on right now in your current role that you want to keep doing. And tell me something that you absolutely hate. And if you never had to do again, um, you'd be thrilled to get it off your plate. And I think about that question and and there's really no wrong answer to it. But what I'm looking for is if somebody says, hey, I really love to do this thing. And I think I hate to do that thing or I'm really bad at that thing. You're finding like a way to build a team that fits these the puzzle pieces to build this like larger picture. And so for me, I am very aware that commercial contracting is not my favorite nor my strength. Uh And I have to recognize that because then I need to be able to say to my commercial partners, hey, I know this isn't my strength. Here's where I'm trying to get. I need your expertise. Like, let's pair up together. Because if I don't recognize that strength, I'm putting the situation in, like, I might be creating a situation that's not the best place. When I hire then and I find somebody who's like, I love the privacy aspects of commercial contracting. <laughs> You're hired. I'm like, this is great. You can teach me. And I, I just think it both empowers people on your team and cross-functionally because um, they don't even have to report to you, but like your partner that you're working with, you're going to learn something because you've hired someone better at you in something. And two, you're w- aware enough of what your weakness is that you kind of own it. Mm. And can, and like, uh, can as a result, it's not something bad, right? Like everyone's going to have a weakness in privacy Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Figure out what yours is and then just say, this is not what I'm really strong at. And so like, let me find a solution to get me there. Uh, And that may be hiring somebody or finding a cross-functional partner or pairing up with somebody where you're co-creating a solution together. Um, I love that. I love that. Okay. Lastly. Be the translator. This is kind of what we were talking, goes to what we were talking about a little bit um, earlier of like just trying to speak the same language as each other um, or trying to translate, you know, tech speak into layman's terms. Um, But anyway, I won't put words in your mouth. Be the translator, you say. As you get good at all the things above, you'll need to explain the concepts and why and the why behind what you're doing to folks who either don't care which happens, don't get why it's important, what definitely happens, or just aren't as close to the work. Help them understand. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so you are always, as a privacy professional, probably going to have more context and information. Um, You may have learned about how something works in a way that somebody else doesn't. Um, 
I say to folks all the time, privacy has really only been around in its current iteration since maybe 2017, when we all started thinking about GDPR compliance. So it's a very nascent field. So even people who've been in the corporate space for a really long time or the regulator space or whatever it may be, they're probably not seeing this version of the privacy world ever before. And because it's constantly changing, we have to be speaking to people and giving them the context about why we're pushing for a particular type of solution or decision. Um, For me, my goal is to reduce thrash or to um, give people as much context as possible so that we can build for the future. And you have to be able to translate what's going on, how something works and why it matters in order to get that buy-in. And you may not get that buy-in right away. It may be a long-term conversation. It may take a year of conversations before somebody goes, oh, I'm seeing what you're talking about now. Mm -hmm. Like This is making sense. The pieces are putting together. But you have to understand that that's your role, um, is that you have to translate what's happening in privacy and your decisions, as well as how the technology works to a group of stakeholders who may have fear, uncertainty, and doubt about it. And that kind of goes to, you know, to bring it all back full circle to the points about AI, where you have people who are rightfully very nervous about it, but also people who are nervous about it, and maybe there aren't that many risks. How do you translate when you should worry about AI and when you should worry about data processing and when you should not? And then how do you help communicate that so people can bring you into the right conversations um, and they don't feel like, oh, my privacy team is blocking everything. They just say no because they haven't translated correctly where the risks lie and what they're trying to achieve to get there. I love that. And I'll I'll just say one thing that I've found helpful for me, if I, so say, for example, I'm the only um, content person at my company, like who's trained in content and publishing. And I was working with some engineers the other day on a project where we needed to collaborate. And I was, I realized that they don't have the insight into how my brain works uh, on a process level when it comes to publishing. And so what I, what I find helpful in those situations is to try and draw a parallel or use a metaphor from their worlds. Like, so like in engineering, you know, like you have a process, there's a, there's a, there's a framework for when, like, when do I, when do I raise a flag? When do we test? You know, when do we just flag it through? Like, whatever it may be. Um, and same thing with me. Like, I need to work within this framework, and I need you to raise a flag only in this instance, but not in this instance. And kind of, like, drawing, using, you know, something that they can imagine in their minds from their own worlds to illustrate your point, rather than just asking them to understand your point without giving them a frame of reference, you know, has been sort of a helpful tool for me in trying to be a good communicator. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, being able to help people relate to their daily job um, and their daily life is, right, once they see how it affects them, right, um, they're much more willing to buy in or have a conversation about it. Well, I've taken more of your time than I meant to, but I could talk to you all day. Um Thank you for being so gracious um, and willing to come chat and for being so insightful. Um, love chatting with you and um, hope you'll come back on the show sometime in the future one more time. Of course. I, I also could chat for hours about this stuff. So thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Have a great rest of your day, Whitney. Thank you so much. Thank you.